0: This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, host of MedLife with Dr. Horton on CMAJ Podcasts. I'm a general internist and associate chair of the Department of Internal Medicine, and the director of the Alan Kloss Health Humanities Program at the Max Rady College of Medicine in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I also host Insights, Arts, Medicine, Life at the National Arts Center in Ottawa. My guest today is Dr. Maryam Hamidi, who's here to discuss the topics of nutrition and sleep and how the two are related to one another. Dr. Hamidi is the Associate Director of Scholarship and Health Promotion at the Stanford Medicine Well MD Well PhD Center and a researcher in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. She completed her master's and doctoral studies in clinical nutrition, nutritional epidemiology, and medical sciences at the University of Toronto. Over the course of her career, she has authored many highly cited scientific papers on nutrition and physician well being. I've reached her at the studios at Stanford University in California. Dr. Hamidi, thank you for joining me today.
1: It's a pleasure being here.
0: So, the first question I want to ask you. You are a person who is working at the intersection of physician health and nutritional sciences. Can you tell me more about how you ended up in this fascinating area of work?
1: That is, I think it's a good story. So I, as you mentioned, completed my PhD and then afterwards I was working in 2012. And since 2002, I I was working at Toronto General Hospital osteoporosis clinic with Angela Chung and I did my PhD with her as well. So during this whole time, my entire focus was always on uh, postmenopausal women health, in particular when it came to bone health and nutrition. So most of my work was in relation to um, making sure that people are maintaining their bone density. And same with people who had who have postural cancer and they were on androgen deprivation therapy and also needed to take care of their bones um, via lifestyle uh, strategies. So while I was working on these projects, one of my friends who was um, working at Air Canada, one day he reached out to me and said, Miriam, you know, we need um, someone to teach our pilots about nutrition and management of sleep and fatigue. I know myself that when I eat better, I feel less tired. So I would imagine that there is some, something else going on. There must be some science to it. Do you know anyone who does that? So I started looking and I couldn't really find anyone who had who was specializing in nutrition and fatigue management in the way that they were looking for. So I told him I can't find anyone. He said, "Can you do it?" I'm like, "Yeah, I you know I kind of did my PhD for 7 years. I think I can. I can learn about that." So I started learning more and uh putting together a package for pilots and I started teaching our kind pilots about fatigue management and, and nutrition and how they could um, reduce their fatigue and also feel more alert and less sleepy during their long-haul flights. At the same time, I was still working at Toronto General with, with physicians, and then I realized there is a parallel universe going on there between medicine and aviation, in that, you know, physicians, just like pilots, work really long hours. They don't have access to healthy food. They're often trapped the same way pilots are trapped in a in their cockpit physicians are trapped in uh, in their um, workplaces in or areas in their clinics um, in emergency uh, medicine rooms and it's a similar situation that in fact sometimes it's worse for physicians because they can't even eat or drink uh, in specific areas due to infection control and other policies so i realized a lot of my physician colleagues in particular residents and fellows were um a lot of times experiencing um hunger thirst um in addition to sleep deprivation, and um the foods that were available to them weren't really healthy um so that made me think of what about I bring what I'm learning in the realm of pilot and pilots nutrition to to physicians so I reached out to Angela and said, you know do you would you be interested if I write a review paper on this and um my colleague and also, uh, who was at the same time, chief resident at uh, Toronto General, Miranda ba- Moggild, um, was also interested in, in doing that work. So we got together and we did a review of literature. We learned that actually Jane Lemire at the University of Calgary has been a pioneer in looking into uh, physician nutrition underperformance. performance. So um, again, I, I've learned a lot from Jane. And also realized that there were very few people in the world who have been looking into this. So it became a, a passion and interest uh, for me to do this work.
0: It's an amazing story. And, you know, one of the things that I remember being struck by the first time I heard you speak via Stanford was the fact that I'd never heard conversation about this before in exactly the way that you tailored it. You know, so much of our advice tends to be generic and not tailored to who we are and what we do. So just leading into that, you have done so much work delineating the relationship between sleep and dietary behaviors. And of course, that relationship is complicated. So could you talk for a bit about that association, particularly in the context of a physician's work schedule? What are some of the major points that you've learned or observed over the years?
1: As you mentioned, a big part of it is sleep deprivation. And again, as you mentioned, too, it's it's like this reciprocal cycle between sleep, as well as stress, mood, and and diet. So for example, we know that when people are sleep deprived, they are more likely to um, go for foods that are higher in calories, and they are more rewarding. So they tend to be higher in added sugar, saturated fat, um, or salt. And also there are d- differences between men and women. Uh, men tend to um, go for something like burgers or fries or something that's like higher in both fat and protein. And women tend to gravitate towards things that are more sweet and, and fatty. Um, but in general, you know, we choose foods that are higher in calorie and comforting. And that can be for two reasons. We know that there are hormonal changes as a result of sleep deprivation that lead to wanting to eat more, even though we are not necessarily hungrier, and also changes in brain function. So uh, in ways that we would engage in behaviors that are rewarding. So when it comes to food, like let's say if you're really sleep deprived and you're exposed to foods that are high in calories and not healthy, then it would it be much harder for you to um, not have that sweet that is right in front of you. There's also another interesting thing that there are some studies that show that when we have higher blood sugar we are more likely to have um, a stronger willpower and engage in in behaviors that we are or activities that we are dreading so let's say you know you it's two pm in the afternoon you're exhausted and you're about to see a patient that you dread seeing for for whatever reason a lot of times we call, like a pick me up it's it, it makes sense for you to want to go and grab. Um, something sweet or something that basically lifts your mood and also increases your blood sugar, so then you can do what seems very difficult for you. There are animal studies to to also suggest the same thing. For example, if um, there was a study on dogs and they were doing intravenous glucose um, injections uh, and they saw that, you know, dogs were more likely to try to take a treat outside of a a complex box and not give up when they had higher blood sugar compared to when they didn't. So there is that as well. But going back to the sleep, um, we also know that diets that are high in saturated fat and sugar impair sleep and also mood. So And also, they can lead into weight gain, which then that can also lead to sleep apnea, for example. So it becomes this vicious cycle of people feeling tired, and then wanting to eat more unhealthy foods, and the cycle repeats itself.
0: Can we talk for a minute about the contrast between the effects of good and poor nutrition on the brain and the body in terms of the things that are of the most interest to physician performance?
1: So there's um, there also, I wanted to mention that there are gender differences there too. So we know there are a couple of studies that show that women are more sensitive to the effects of diet. So women uh, would benefit greatly from having a diet that is high in fruits and vegetables, in particular green leafy vegetables and, and healthy fats. Whereas men have a bit of a more um, uh, flexibility in that. And th- that means like, for example, if if men are having an average diet, they don't suffer the consequences as much as women do. For men, it's like if they have a purely junk food diet, they suffer the consequences. So that's kind of an interesting thing to to keep in mind. And in in the observational studies that we have done with our Stanford physicians, uh, we looked at the dietary patterns and we saw that physicians who uh, were, I would say, had a preference because it's really hard to, you know, self-reported dietary intake is always very tricky. Sometimes we report what we prefer to eat, not necessarily what we eat. So what we pick up is actually a combination of what people do and what people prefer to do. So in this study, we found that people who had a preference for diets that were higher in green leafy vegetables, basically a Mediterranean plant-based diet, um, had lower rates of um, sleep-related impairment. And that's basically feeling uh, tired and and not uh, alert during the day compared to those who had a preference for those diets that were high in saturated fat and added sugars. And you also mentioned in the context of, you know, challenges that physicians experience, um, one of the things that often comes to my mind is um, thinking about people uh, who are in OR, the, or the whole entire team, physicians, nurses, and everybody else who is who's, who's um, in the room, um, A lot of times they go without food and water for long periods of time. And I mentioned the effects of uh, food on on performance, but also hydration. We know, for example, dehydrated pilots have worse flight performance. Soccer referees, they make um, judgment uh, mistakes when they're dehydrated. Same for also, there's a study on physicians that their short-term memory was impaired when they were dehydrated. And then I think all of us have also experienced you know um, how our mood changes when we are hungry so imagine you have a room full of people who are thirsty and hungry and i always wonder what what if like part of the aggression that we see in our culture is because people are um, deprived of food and water as well as you know not being able to to use the washroom And then the other thing, too, is um, dehydration changes our visual acuity and also um, uh, attention. So imagine a neurosurgeon who is dehydrated. And again, um, what if we can reduce a lot of medical errors if we could pay attention to proper nutrition and hydration for our operating rooms? And um, that applies to emergency medicine as well, and also any clinician in any uh, in any setting, in fact, when they are feeling tired or doing repetitive work, uh, they are more likely to make mistakes if they don't have uh, proper hydration and nutrition.
0: One thing I, I think people might wonder hearing you say that is how, how do those studies tend to define dehydration or what does that actually translate into for most of us in terms of oral fluid, you know, the, the difference between what we would have to take in to be replete
1: so there, there are many ways. Uh, one of the ways that they, the simplest way that they use for athletes to summarize and make it very simple is uh, we want our urine to look like lemonade, not apple juice. Um, I know there are, you know, medical conditions, you know, the B um, vitamins, um, food, uh, they can change the urine color, but you can always be your own control and compare you to yourself, Um, and that's one easy way of knowing if you are having enough water or not. There are, uh, in the studies, they usually look at urine output. That's one way of measuring how dehydrated people are or loss of weight. Uh, And more recent studies show that we actually don't even need to be dehydrated, just not having enough. They call it hypohydration. So if we're even mildly dehydrated or have hypohydration, that that alone can uh, affect our mood There was one interesting study that looked at providing healthy meals and water to healthcare providers who were working night shifts. And they didn't really find much in regards to providing healthy food. But one interesting finding was that uh, people who had about 500 milliliters of water, they tend to feel better and feel less um, aggressive during their night shifts. So water can be just one simple strategy to to improve our mood in particular during night shifts.
0: So that is one concrete takeaway, and I love it because it's so simple and everybody can remember, you know, 500 milliliters of water can make a difference. I'm wondering, based on your extensive experience, if you're coaching uh, physicians around optimizing their nutrition in their own work setting and their hydration, what are some of your favorite tips and tricks to overcoming the barriers to being hydrated and to eating well?
1: So for hydration, uh, a few things that might be helpful to keep in mind is that it's better to have little bits of water throughout the day instead of, you know, chugging 500 milliliters of water all at once because your body wouldn't retain that and will get rid of it pretty quickly. Um, and if we want to kind of reduce the number of washroom um, visits, that's one way of, of doing that. So basically gradually having water throughout the day. So if I tell that to physicians, they're like, well, good luck. I really don't have time to, to do this. Uh, it's It's not possible for me to carry a water bottle everywhere. But... Um, some people can and do so one strategy is to choose a water bottle that you love and it becomes your friend so the same way sometimes you know people become friends with their phones and having a case that they like um, also helps with that choosing a water bottle that it's easy for you to carry and becomes like your best friend can help with remembering to carry it around and also drinking water from it um, another way, uh, I call it uh, time-release fluids. That's having fruits and vegetables because it will give you some times uh, for the water in, in fruits and vegetables to be released. So the act of digestion also releases some some water, which can then be reabsorbed if we are dehydrated. So um, having fruits and vegetables is one way. Um, having also um, specific times in the day that we remind ourselves to drink so waking up in the morning having a cup of water if you are um, going to a meeting having a cup of water with you or drinking a cup of water during the meeting uh, in your commute to work in the way back from work and then with every meal so it- That way, you can have at least about five cups of water per day. It's not easy. I've been trying to do that myself. I often remember to drink as soon as I wake up and during meetings. Uh, Those have been helpful to me. And for physicians, um, depending on their specialty and their schedules, a lot of times carrying the water bottle has been the most helpful one, as well as having fruits and vegetables.
0: Another thing I found myself thinking about as you talk about this potential relationship between aggression and, you know, mild um, dehydration is, again, ties into the work on commensality. You know, and if you think of 20 years ago, when I was first in my career and our training, you know, most meetings, most gatherings, even most rounds, in addition to food, there'd be a jug of water on the table with cups. And of course, with our shift to those things not being provided, paid for, part of either academic or um, institutional life, it, it's interesting you make me think that that's another potential thing that we have lost is just those inadvertent opportunities that we used to provide people to hydrate that also disappeared along with food and common space.
1: And I also want to go back. You asked about food, and, and I didn't mention that, and probably unconsciously because it's such a difficult thing to tackle Um in particularly when I'm uh, working with residents, it's really difficult to tell them you know try to eat healthier because a lot of times they are working about eighty hours a week and I got to experience that myself when I was uh doing a study last year, which involved um studying residents during night shifts to see um, how their performance changes as we fed them different meal compositions. so I was working eighty hour weeks with them, and I realized. Um, what they were going through, um, how little time they have. And a lot of times it was, you know, for me it was like I came home, I had six hours and I had to decide whether I wanted to sleep, eat, take a shower or do other self-care behaviors that were absolutely necessary. Uh, so to, if someone came to me and told me, by the way, try to eat healthy, uh, it would be infuriating to to hear that. And I find that a lot of residents feel that way when I'm invited to give talks about nutrition and performance in, in physicians. So in that case, it becomes the responsibility of the organizations, healthcare organizations, um, GME administration, to make sure that residents and also all physicians and all healthcare providers, in fact, have access to, to healthy meals, to provide it um, um, in a way that's both affordable and accessible and um, that create areas for, for healthcare providers and um, to sit and eat together for the commensality reason that you mentioned creates collegiality. People often talk around food, and then once it's over, they, they kind of move on and they had a moment of you know connecting with each other. A lot of times, um, physicians need to go to cafeterias or common areas where patients are and one is like they don't have the time to wait in line, but also sometimes they just want some um, some time away from, from patients so they can ground themselves and, and have a moment to themselves and not run into a, a patient who had a difficult encounter again while they are waiting to get their food. So it's really, really important to create the space uh, and make it easy for physicians to To eat healthy, I mean they have the knowledge, and in my experience, every time that we have provided healthy food, no one has objected to it. That said, sometimes when we uh, were working on changing the food options in our physician lounge, we got some complaints about, you know, removing soda and and Mm -hmm. chips. It was kind of (laughs) funny. but I also get, it goes back to that whole um, sleep deprivation and our preference for, for certain foods. And, you know, sometimes when we, do, we don't have control over everything else that's happening, you know, let's just have that, those options as well. Or the other, other way to go around it, too, is like we can provide healthy options, but then people would have, they always have the option of bringing whatever uh, food preference they, they have, uh, bringing that to, to work but the main point is to make it easy for people to follow a healthy diet which is not the case in, in in most healthcare organizations right now there's one
0: study that i think you shared with me at a different point in time and it was around patients' perceptions when physicians consume food or drink in front of them
1: right yes that's that's uh, that's one of the misconceptions that it, it wouldn't be perceived as professional or even sometimes uh, the idea that it may be unkind to drink and eat in front of uh, patients who cannot eat and drink, and there was a, a very small study in, uh, well, actually not that small. I think they, they had um, around at least hundred people in the in the study in the UK, and they asked patients and hospital staff, "Do you think it would be physicians shouldn't be eating and drinking in front of patients who can't eat and drink?" And um, above. Eighty percent of people said there is no problem that they would not have a problem if their physicians ate or drank in front of them. Another thing I wanted to to mention is um, a few studies have looked at the um, causes of malnutrition in our hospitalized patients, and one of the interesting things that came up, and it was surprising to me, is one of the reasons is patient meal times being disrupted by. Either physicians or other healthcare professionals for medical procedures, um, and it goes to show how we don't really respect eating in a medical culture, and also sleeping too. A lot of times, if you um, talk to uh, people who have spent nights during uh, at, at hospital, they'll tell you it's impossible to sleep, like regardless how, of how sick they feel you know, with all the beeping and sounds and people walking in and turning on the light in the middle of the night. uh, A lot of times patients want to go home so they can sleep, but also so they can eat, which is quite ironic, given that we are trying to help them recover. So that's another thing that I'm always thinking is like, you know, what if we had protected time for eating for both patients and physicians and all other healthcare professionals? So that was a time that Everyone was was eating and taking care of that aspect of life, which happens to be important, instead of um, a culture that doesn't value that at all.
0: Now, you talked about sleep, and I wonder if you could talk for a few minutes about how It's possible for us as physicians to form so-called good sleep habits when we take into consideration the long, often irregular shifts, the interruptions that we frequently face overnight when we're on call, and the workload that comes with the territory. What can a person actually do to cultivate a good sleep habit in in the face of those circumstances,
1: I think this is also something that needs to be um, addressed by multiple, not just physicians themselves, but also the role that organizations play in that. So, basically, reducing all the redundancies in work, electronic health records, not having to work at home um, on the electronic health records and, and notes and charts. We've noticed that that's one of the reasons that physicians can't get enough sleep, and uh, we've provided a coaching option to physicians who have uh, brought that to our attention. That would be one way. Uh, Other ways that uh, individuals can handle that is knowing what their chronotypes are. You know, so we often talk about morning-type people and night-type people, but it's it's a lot more than that. You know, there are daytime people and there's like extreme morning people and then there are people who are like moderately morning and then same thing at night. So there are different questionnaires that you can find out, you know, when will be the optimum time for you to, to wake up and what will be an optimum time to consider going to sleep and like that alone, that knowledge can be very helpful. The other thing is if people are working really, really hard, sometimes they choose not to sleep because then again that that's more uh for for our residents that it's almost like they have no life if if their only thing is they work and sleep sometimes they purposely choose not to sleep enough so that they can talk to their family members or hang out with their friends or socialize a little bit so again handling the uh the workload is a is a huge part and then the, the personal preferences uh, and things that people can do. It's actually less of a control uh on that part. And then the last part would be there are there are some sleep education and I'm not sure if um that is provided or not, but concepts like um anchor sleep, split sleep that people can use depending on, you know, um when uh the preference for sleeping at night is and trying to protect that so if they can take a nap before Um, or or like basically break down their, day sleep into different chunks during the day uh, and making sure that they are sleeping. um, Let's say if somebody's usual bedtime is from 11 to 7, when they're on a night shift and they get a chance to sleep, um, have a bit of overlap between their usual patterns and when they take the naps. Uh, The split sleep is a different concept that basically you kind of break down your sleep during different chunks throughout the day. And um, the other part would be sometimes aviation does that. I think ideally it would be really nice to um, assign people who are, you know, early morning type people to like early morning shifts. That would be basically technology. Maybe in 10 years we could kind of do personalized Uh, shifts for for people according to their chronotype. Um, Therefore, no one would suffer. You know, like a person who is not a morning person, they can do a night shift and someone who is like an early morning, they can do the morning shift. I'm being very idealistic, but um, that's something else that that might be helpful.
0: Another thing I've heard you talk about is the strategic and evidence-based optimal use of caffeine for physicians. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Right, yes. So caffeine is a is a commonly used strategy to to battle uh, fatigue and improve alertness. And uh one of the ways to um to take best advantage of that is knowing the difference for example between coffee and and tea. So tea has in particular green tea has a amino acid called L-theanine and L-theanine works synergistically with with coffee. And on its own, it has a calming effect. So for example, if we are doing something that requires a lot of attention, but it tends to be more monotonous, like doing notes, green tea would be a better option for this, for this kind of activity. Whereas if we are moving around and um, we need to do uh, a task that requires attention switching, coffee would be a better choice. Another thing to keep in mind is the half-life of caffeine. So depending on if we are a fast metabolizer of caffeine or a slow metabolizer of caffeine, and usually everyone knows how sensitive they are to caffeine, is knowing that it, it can take between three to sometimes eight hours. So uh, that's the half-life of caffeine. And a lot of times it's very effective for the first three hours, um, sometimes five hours. And beyond that beyond that point, it only disrupts sleep but it doesn't really add to our alertness. So if we are feeling really tired at 3 p.m. and we have a cup of coffee, first of all, there is a delay. So it will take about uh, 30 minutes to about 90 minutes for for caffeine to to be effective and to increase our alertness. So we wouldn't really feel alert until about 4.30 to 5. And that's basically when you're about to wrap up and go home and you're in the car, it's like, oh, great, now I feel really alert. I needed this about an hour and a half ago. Um, So knowing that time lag can be helpful also for another reason, and that's um, something that's called calf nap. So we can have a caffeinated beverage, tea, coffee, and take a nap, and by the time we wake up, so a, a nap that's about 30 minutes to 40 minutes, and by the time we wake up, The caffeine has kicked in and we've had our nap, and coffee also reduces sleep inertia. So, a lot of times when we are really really sleep deprived and we take a nap, we feel um, groggy afterwards. So, coffee can help with overcoming that as well. So, that's a good strategy to to use the calf nap. And, And also, again, being aware of that time lag and knowing that beyond five hours, it can only disrupt our sleep, not necessarily help with the alertness. So then we don't enter this vicious cycle of constantly feeling tired and having coffee or tea at the wrong time um, and disrupt our sleep. This calf
0: nap strategy is an example of such a practical thing that I learned from you last year. And, you know, sometimes my husband will see me having a cup of coffee right before I lie down to have a nap. And he says, like, what are you doing? And But this, you know, the importance, it just illustrates that there are these things that we aren't really aware of in medicine when it comes to optimal performance under the difficult conditions that we work in. And if we know them, we actually can harness them and, again, get some locus of control over the things that tend to cause us the most distress in our lives.
1: That's right. And the other one that you just reminded me is for people who don't want to have caffeine is, is chewing gum. So there are some studies that also show that um, chewing a gum can help with reducing stress, can improve alertness. If we are feeling sleepy and we don't want to eat a snack or don't even have time, the act of chewing a gum can be helpful in in those situations. And what
0: I'm struck by, as you say that again, is so often, and I've certainly seen this in medical education learners will be criticized if they're chewing gum you <laughs> know you know on rounds or in a um in the ICU I've I've seen that kind of thing before and you just gave me this vivid recollection that when I was a resident whenever I was about to do a procedure I I had no awareness that there was a scientific basis of it but I always knew that if I chewed gum while I was doing it it actually allowed me to download some of my stress and I always felt more Relax. So, just like the drinking fluids or eating in front of patients, what another vivid example of how some of these myths that we've perpetuated about things that we should or shouldn't do actually have maybe diminished some of our capacity to be effective and and useful. Another question that I I want to ask you: When you think of organizations, you, you talked about Air Canada and your time at University Health Network, and of course now you're at Stanford. Can you tell me about some powerful realizations or organizational change that you have been able to affect in those consultations?
1: Yes. So um, actually, sometimes it's it's both um, success and failure stories. So one of the um, at Stanford we we tried to change the food options in the physician lounge, and that was that was received well. Um, one of the main challenges often is the cost. So I remember giving a talk at uh, the um, chief wellness officer course that Stanford holds in June. And um, I met some of uh, my physician colleagues again in um, September of that that year or October of that year um, during a conference. And they're like, hey, Miriam, can we talk with you for a minute? I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on? (laughs) So uh, what had happened was because I... I guess I was convincing about the importance of nutrition in physician performance. They started offering healthy uh, meals in their physician lounge. And what happened is over time, the cost of food in physician lounge went about from two to 3000 to almost $18,000. And that was like, well, this is not sustainable. We can't do this. And one of the things that, that was happening, um, is physicians are compassionate, altruistic people. It would be very difficult for them to go to a lounge and have access to healthy food and not think of all the other people in their team who are hungry and thirsty and um, probably also are at a financial disadvantage and not, not grab food for them. Um, so a lot of times this strategy is yes we we try to fix one problem but if it's not an organization wide and it's not inclusive of everyone who is taking care of patients it it just doesn't work and a lot of times it's also in the case of um, Air Canada too was you know me showing that you know the food that you're providing to to pilots this is Air Canada Rouge a lot of times it's not being eaten so like you know, from the trade that you give them, maybe only 20% of it is eaten and the other 80% is is wasted. So what if we kind of consider that the cost of waste and spend a little bit more uh, on on providing healthier food and then not have the waste? But again, that's only doable if we are doing it for, for everybody in healthcare organizations, not just a small group. Uh, and, and in particular, again, if you want to only take care of uh, physicians, it's guaranteed that they're going to take care of everyone. So it will automatically happen. Yeah.
0: But again, I, I, what I hear and what you're saying is it's coming back to the business case again, that, you know, singular strategies that are too localized can just set us up for more failure. So it's taking a much longer view, isn't it, towards the health of the organization as a whole um, and seeing it sort of as an organism in a holistic way. Exactly. So if there's one final message you want clinicians to take away from your work, how would you summarize it?
1: I think the main um, thing would be to increase awareness about the importance of nutrition in um, short-term performance of physicians and also all other healthcare professionals. I think this is something that all the... um, administrative people need to be aware of. All the program directors and their um, administrative people need to to know about that as well. It's not, you know, sometimes I find that, uh, let's say in in some of the conferences that we go to, or or even when um, foods are being ordered for physicians and residents, is the lack of knowledge by people who order those foods about the importance of nutrition on short-term performance Uh, not just you know a lot of times people know you know if you don't eat well you may end up gaining weight and diabetes and heart disease but not many people pay attention to how eating right now may affect our performance in about four hours from now and I guess if a lot of people knew that a lot of things would change rather rapidly and again increasing knowledge and every opportunity that we have to to let um, other people learn about these important facts is most likely to bring change.
0: Actually, I have one final question for you. If people are interested in learning more about all of the issues you've talked about today, do you have favorite non-commercial resources online or books that you would direct them towards?
1: There is a book that Dr. Laura Roberts and Mickey Trucco at Stanford University have edited the Art and Science on Physician Wellbeing. There is a book chapter on nutrition that I've contributed to and I've tried to summarize all the points that I covered today in, in that book chapter. That's one uh good place to go to and um I'm trying to come up with, you know, resources that are available online. There is a, a two-page handout that I have on the WellMD website, I can share that link with you. I think this is an area that needs a lot more work to make sure that you know there is evidence-based information and um, something that's reliable and people can easily have access to instead of multiple random websites that um, are trying to sell something.
0: Dr. Hamidi, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I've learned a ton, I always do. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure speaking with you today. I've
0: been speaking with Dr. Miriam Hamidi, Associate Director of Scholarship and Health Promotion at the Stanford Medicine Well MD Well PhD Center, and researcher in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. If you'd like to hear more podcasts in the series MedLife with Dr. Horton, you can find them as part of CMAJ podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating. This podcast was made possible in part by the support of the Allen Kloss Health Humanities Program. I'm Dr. Jillian Horton. Thank you for listening.